I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. Uh, so my name is Roger Reeves. The title of this poem is Children Listen. It turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. The body in flames will not be the body in flames, but just a house fire ignored. The black sails of that solitary burning boat rubbing along the legs of lovers flung into a Roman sky by a carousel. The lovers too sick in their love to notice a man drenched in fire on a porch or a child aflame mistaken for a dog mistaken for a child running to tell of a bomb that did not knock before it entered in gaza with its glad tidings of abundant joy in kazmira's a god is weeping in a window one golden hand raised above his head as if he slipped on the slick rag of the future our human kindnesses unremarkable as the flies rubbing their legs together while standing on a slice of cantaloupe. Children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves. I have so much to ask and say about the poem, but I was wondering if we could actually like start with the like last lines of the poem. Sure. Our human kindnesses, unremarkable as the flies rubbing their legs together while standing on a slice of cantaloupe. Children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves. Can you tell me how you arrived there? Sure. I actually heard this poem in sections. So that was the first section I heard of the poem. Mm. So I heard, children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves probably about three or four years ago. Um, and I just heard that and I just thought, oh, that's that's something. But I don't know what it was. So I just have, I have this little notebook is actually sitting in my note, sitting in my pocket right now. And I'll just have snatches of things come like that. Mm-hmm. And you just let them sit. And so then I was reading a lot of Czesław Miłosz and Szymborska. Then this takes me back to the beginning of the poem. There was a biographer who was writing about Miwosh, and there was a line in the article where the biographer said something like, it turns out, however, I was deeply mistaken. And I just thought that type of humility, right? To, and so he was talking about Miwosh, something about Miwosh, and I thought, oh, this must, this be really interesting, right, to sort of bring Miwosh in. And so I love Miwosh's poem about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a way in which, for me, I heard many different things sort of happen. Also, the the music that I hear, Beneath this poem is the Stevie Wonder song, Jesus Children, America's Children. I kept thinking about the way in which he was writing. Like, Stevie Wonder seems to me to always be writing towards children that have yet to be born. To me, I was, like, thinking about Miłosz, thinking about Stevie Wonder, thinking about Zimborska, and then the image of the god who's slipping on the slick rag of the future with his hand that actually comes from a stained glass window in krakow all these things were like these pieces and so for me that's what i think of poems as sort of patchwork right and so it's a and then kazmir is the reason kazmir is is mentioned is in krakow so krakow was one of the few cities during world war ii that wasn't totally destroyed because the nazis decided to occupy it as a sort of base and what winds up happening is they there's a Jewish district sort of r- less than half mile from this, from basically where this church is and where the castle that the Nazis sort of occupied. And so that's why Kazmierz is mentioned right mm-hmm. there because Kazmierz is just being repopulated by Jewish folks in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, and that's where I stayed in the Jewish mm-hmm. district uh, when I was in Krakow back in 2012. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I'm playing, playing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like sort of energy and, that, and that's why I wanted Gaza to be so close to Kazmir is because right. there's that connection, right? Right now what we have in Gaza seems to be what's, what, what's happened already mm-hmm. in, in Europe, right? There, there's sort of, 
tethered and tied in this way and they seem to be sort of speaking to each other um so i wanted this sort of that proximity children you were never meant to be human it's amazing to hear you talk about how you put the poem together i never would have thought that's how this poem came together and it's amazing to me to hear you talk about the poem as a pet or, or that that's how you put together a poem that it's like it feels like a patchwork to you because to me it seems like seamless like it seems like very carefully stitched together like not a patchwork at all no it it's funny is it was very different like after so this version came to me probably about a month and a half ago a month ago and it was i was watching a documentary or something and it and then all the so this was much longer and then all the people, like, sort of, I, I took out everything else uh-huh. that didn't need, that wasn't necessary. Uh, and I just remember it was a Saturday night, and I just, like, shot up, went up to the room and, like, typed it. Um, uh-huh. But I believe poems can come, like, so this is the thing. I think poems can be immaculately stitched and simultaneously sort of heaved together. Um, and what I mean by that is... The, the drafts are all practice. Like I think about like, think about like jazz, right? So if we've been, so if we've been playing a certain song, right? And there's an improvisation section, the B section, right? I'm used to playing that song. I've played through the key changes. I know the changes. I know all the different types of melodies. Then there might be one day where I'm playing the song at a gig. And then all of a sudden I hear an improvisation and it, and it makes the song cohere, mm-hmm. right? And if you've heard it for the first time, all you get is the performance. And you're like, oh, of course. That's of course what it was. But it wasn't that, right, in the making, mm-hmm. right? No making. There is sometimes where making is that smooth. There definitely are moments like that. But I think that for me, it's it's about the practice, right? And, and sort of, to me, that's like, to me, it's a compliment, right? Like, I've practiced this song in some ways so much that it just feels seamless, but really, mm-hmm. right. And that's why I kind of want to talk about it a bit, like not being seamless mm-hmm. because I think it's not the last draft. It was what started four years ago mm-hmm. with me looking at that window in Krakow mm-hmm. and me getting snatches of language that eventually sort of cohere right into this fashion, but it's very rough. My experience reading the poem is that we move so um, meaningfully mm-hmm. toward those last lines that it's that's what is surprising to me. Okay. That you, as the poet, yeah. don't arrive. You didn't arrive at those lines in the same way that your reader does. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and not that they are. And that's what makes it such a successful poem. The experience of it, such a successful poem, is that it's so surprising and. Hmm. that idea of something being like both inevitable and impossible at the same time like it it feels like that and it's it's really um amazing to think that like you started there it kind of makes me hate you a little bit (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i totally hear you like i I, you know one of the things that i think is really important is to trust the poem Mm -hmm. and trust yourself that it could take you years and that's fine Mm -hmm. right like to me, I'm really trying to, like, I think I become a much better poet each time I trust myself more. Mm-hmm. And I allow myself to take time and just say, you know what, it's not, it's not what it is yet. It's not, it's not there. I think some of it too was, I knew, I knew this poem. How it, I'm always trying to now, now that I have a daughter, I, I think about, and I, I, even before I, I always try to like, what if, what would be the poem I would want to leave her? What is the poem that would be the instruction, right? And I think this is like, you have to, you were never meant to be human, right? Like human is this construct, is this category. You must be the, you must grow wildly over everything that is trying to like turn this into a graveyard. You must, you know, like you must take, you know, it. it's to me the feralness that we sort of lose and we need in our, our children show us the feral, right? Um, and the untamed, right? And I think we need to nurture the untamed um, as much as possible. Uh, and so there was a way in which you know, I still see myself, I still feel very untamed um, interiorly. Mm-hmm. And as a, like, I still feel like the untamed child a lot of ways. Um, I was just with my mom, and so I definitely feel like an untamed child. <laughs> I think she still looks at me like, you're feral. <laughs> so. 
and also just like the idea of the of grass growing over graves and that wildness that is coming from like being nourished by what has died its own death and we i feel like we that's where we're that's what we learn in the first half of this poem mm-hmm. it's what ruined it all you mm-hmm. know that's like this is what this is what caused the downfall mm-hmm. and you must grow over that and maybe take nourishment from mm-hmm. you know that's the only way it's like I, for some reason the angel of history popped into my head mm-hmm. right and thinking about how the angel of history can't sort of he is bl- or she the, the figure is blown into the to the future right mm-hmm. um sort of they can't turn back but they can see it right and i think i think our children don't have to be angels in that way Right. They can actually like look at the past and the future simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think they they have the opportunity to feed on the ruins in a way. And I think we all must feed on the ruins. Right. I think that like to me, this feels very this is where the poem is very black in a certain way, ontologically black. Right. Because what I mean by that is that's just being black. That's what being black in America mm-hmm. is. Right. Like we take the pig's feet. We take the chitterlings. We take what's discarded. And we turn it into delicacy. We turn it into food, right? Uh, we turn it into, you know, we do this with, with, with music, right? We do this with clothing. We do this with style. We do this with religion. We do this with culture, right? We sort of take what has been discarded and make something else, right? I think refugees do this. I think immigrants do this, right? It's it's the only way to make, right? So, you know, to me, it's that's what it's about. Can I have a quick question? Is that, or are you going to jump on? No. So we were talking about this poem before, and I and I have been thinking a lot about this use of ghosts in literature mm-hmm. that I've read, like with Jasmine Ward's book, mm-hmm. and then um, what else did I? Oh yeah, with uh, Aaron Dottie Roy's mm-hmm. The Ministry of Epistemology, and this idea of ghosts and how they carry history that's like not the hegemonic history, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. how they transmit that, you know, yeah. so that. This whole idea, like there are ghosts that are carrying history mm-hmm. and that you have to be on top of those graves mm-hmm. and carry that history is so fascinating. Like, do you comment on that if you'd like? Sure, sure. Comment on ghosts. No, I, I mean, I think about ghosts and the dead all the time, right? Like, I think that's what DNA might, like if we were to sort of, if we were to find a sort of uh, vernacular way of talking about DNA, we might call it ghost. It's carrying the ghost of the past, right? It's carrying, right? And we know with epigenetics now that we say, that you know we understand trauma to be carried through the genes and through DNA right now. So there's a way in which, right? When science is talking about DNA, really they're talking about ghosts, right? Um, and so for me, I'm I'm really interested in sort of thinking about the way our ghosts are with us. And they're always with us, even if you don't believe in them as like a haunting or Casper or even something that's like uh, sort of sequestered in a house because it's like, right, there's a way in which we're still carrying with us so much of our ancestry, right? So they're ghosting, they're haunting, right? There's traces of our ancestors in us, right? And so I'm really interested in us carrying that and that as nourishment. Often I think our ancestors and those that have come before us and those ancestors can be understood as familial. They can be understood as blood. They can be understood as political ancestors, as aesthetic ancestors. They often leave us maps. They often leaves us, leave us trails of how to sort of not make similar mistakes or make something a little different and better, right, than what they could have made, right? Um, so uh, I think for me, Miwosh is as much of an ancestor as um, Langston Hughes, right? I think there's chosen, right? There's chosen blood, right? And there's blood, blood, right? And so I'm really interested in sort of thinking about that and thinking about how the ghosts, and I like this idea that the ghosts carry sort of the alternative, right? The alternative history, the history that no one wants to tell, right? I come out of the Pentecostal church, so we believe in spirits, right? And the possession of, of, and, and the way in which sort of these, they can transmit knowledges, they can transmit messages. They can transmit things that folks in this realm need. So I think it's, yeah, I think that's happening mm-hmm. all the time in many different ways, right? Some people call it science. Some people call it spirit. I think it's happening. I have a weird question that I just keep thinking, like, no, that's uh, that's just like, it's not even enough of a question. 
But I, I just going to ask it, and if you want to just pass over it, it's fine. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you think of this poem as being philosophically perhaps hopeful mm. or not. And if it is hopeful to you, where, how so? Because sure. it feels like that to me. I mean, this poem reminds me a little bit of the poem, um, that Merwin poem, like on the last day of the world, mm. I would plant a tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about it that where the, the hopefulness is drawn from the sort of ashes of what has mm. been, or like, I don't know. Can you just, is that a, is that a weird question to you? Sure. No, it's a complicated question because uh, I think hopeful, yes. But also, it is philosophic. It's interest. It is a. It's philosophically hopeful in the sense that it's it's asking the children to reject being human. Right. That maybe it is the human condition that has made this thing, and once we reject it, whole cloth, wholesale, we actually might make a new thing. We might make the thing. We might make something else. And I don't want to be romantic. We're still gonna have flaws and errors and things like that. Um, we are. Uh, we are limited, right? But I think one of the limitations that we've seen is the way in which the human can creates a distinction between the non-human, and that's actually where a lot of this stuff begins in the believing of this divide. What I'm asking in the children in that moment, right, the hope is that they see themselves as the grass. They don't see themselves as differently from the grass. They don't see themselves as differently from the graves, right? That they are all of, they are that, they are going to that. They're going to be that. And they're like, it's, it's hopeful, but in the sense of it requires work. It actually is a really hard charge to say to the children, you must sort of be larger than, right? You must become something that we couldn't become, right? I'm tasking you with becoming the grass. I'm tasking you with growing wildly over our mistakes, mm-hmm. right? God, it reminds me of that. You know, like, it kind of takes off that Zimborska poem of, on maps, mm-hmm. which I love. And the end is like, I like maps because they lie. Mm-hmm. They lay out a world before me, not of this world, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like almost telling people, like, you know, there is no map. You know, you you just don't, it, you don't have to trust that anymore. Like, you can go and you can, you can be and you can create something completely new because that's a lie. It is. It is. You know? it, it, like, that's why I love Zimborska is always feels like she gives me, how do I say, permission to go be a little bit more feral, to go out into the world and just lead. I mean, I feel like we are talking about the last lines of the poem and we're not talking Mm -hmm. about the rest of the poem, Mm -hmm. which is deeply, I mean, it seems very much a poem of of this moment and of the history of, freaking humankind as we as we know it but there's um so much about in the poem about that right like the the distinction about what makes a human and what doesn't make a human and what do we value Mm -hmm. and which humans do we value Mm -hmm. you know a a child a flame mistaken for a dog Mm -hmm. mistaken for a child running to tell of a bomb you know that that uh, there's um there's like a it seems like almost like a cautionary thing about mm-hmm. you know where do we we cannot have um unclear boundaries between what is a human life of value and what is mm-hmm. what is not mm-hmm. um and it makes me think a little bit about um do you know Natalia Sylvester she wrote a mm-hmm. book about um and uh, essentially like um uh, a family in McAllen, Texas, that is like dealing, you know, it's, it's sort of about um, uh, being undocumented. Mm-hmm. And so she, in her public, I think, appearances and things, has, she talks about it a lot on social media. So I imagine that it comes from like the repetition of an uh, maybe an annoying question to her because she has a book that is like of this subject matter. But she all keeps saying, like, you know, she re- resists that idea of like, the compliment in air quotes mm. of like you have just really humanized this this story and these people and there's you know and and that implies that they are less than human and that our job as artists perhaps is to humanize what otherwise you know it would be totally okay to just sort of not think of that way and if there's something about this poem 
that rejects even that gesture, you know, like what if the gesture isn't to humanize, but to transcend almost, you know, in the end, like you, you were never meant to be human, Mm -hmm. you know, like stop, like, like, you know, if we, what what happens if we just go in the opposite direction? Yeah. It's, it's questioning the logics of what we consider to be the making of what we consider whole, or right, right? The, the, the thing that we've, we constantly think that art does is make us more human. And if that's the case, then art is always, then art has clearly failed over and over and over again, right? Because it, it, or, or it has succeeded in not making us human. And what I mean by that is maybe the goal of art is to actually sort of, reje- the goal is to reject the logics of certain types of things like empathy. Right. Or to understand that there are there chasms for which things cannot be crossed or that we won't we won't be able to speak across or we won't be able to know across and to respect the chasm, to say the chasm exists. Right. This to allow the thing to be or that we just how do I say this? I've, I've been really questioning the logics of of nation. Right. And sovereignty. Right. And maybe that is the problem. Right. Maybe the nation is the problem. Maybe we haven't broken the nation enough right um maybe we maybe we continue to sort of understand this question of art to be a humanizing process when human is exactly the thing we want to flee right we might need to run in the opposite direction of the human brilliant right and so i think that what's funny is i there's this really great book by um what's his name um bruno latour where he says we have never been modern Right. The idea of like the notion of, you know, modern and primal man, right? Minor and and the, and the primeval man. And and so there's a way in which in my dissertation I wrote like we have never been human. Right. And I'm really you know, I'm taking off of Sylvia Winter and other sort of post humanism discussions, but I'm really sort of thinking about what if we reject that, right? Like I think much in the way that we're having we're seeing these conversations with gender. Mm-hmm. Right. What if we sort of expand? What if gender doesn't exist in the ways that we think? What if we like dismiss those logics? What then do we open up in terms of a possibility uh, for for ourselves in this present world, which could open up different possibilities for the future? All right. So I'm I'm thinking about that sort of in that conversation, and I think this is sort of poem is trying to do that, and it's trying to do that by saying I was wrong, right? Like I think that it's really difficult for human, like I think for human course to change. Right. And I think in art, we have to model the humility of and we have to model being wrong. Right. I think too often the poet is interested in being right. Right. Or, and so I'm really interested in being wrong. Right. Like to reset, start out with like, oh, no, nah, I fucked up or I lied or right. That to me is the more sort of interesting moment. Right. And then what we do afterward, because it's such a an unknown moment in art. Right, to to be like I was wrong. At least for me, I don't see a lot of people saying, you know, I was wrong. As or an else artist. performing, mm-hmm. I was, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, performing, yeah, yeah. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there is something also about saying that you're wrong is is not being told that you're wrong, but mm-hmm. like being able to own that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like there's there's some like agency there mm-hmm. to be like, oh, you know. I can tell you this because I am a now a more enlightened human mm-hmm. person, you know, yeah. like I am, you know, there's a, there's both, it holds both, mm-hmm. both things. I love the way also just like as a poem, the way it opens, it turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. Like it's right in the middle, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you enter into the middle of not a conversation, almost like you're in the middle of a th- thesis that's being proven and you don't know what the other part of the thesis was like you know Hmm. here's everything i set up right but it turns out i was i was actually mistaken and that's where the poem starts you know Mm -hmm. and so there's this like a little bit of dis uh derangement at the beginning of the poem for the reader that's like actually very pleasurable Mm -hmm. and it's not difficult to enter into either you know yeah i mean it turns out however that i was deeply mistaken about the end of the world it's like so impossible and so huge and like, but it's also kind of like funny. Like, yeah. it, there's a there's a there's a humor there to it, um, and there's a voice. I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. I know that we've I've I think we had a very brief conversation. It might have been when you visited my class. Okay. 
but I can't remember now. But because it seemed like a personal, like a private conversation. So, but I think I used the phrase it's like somebody's like somebody's voice in a mm-hmm. poem. And you like had this really interesting like response, and you talked about how you really don't trust that as a term in poetry. Oh yeah. And I just like I feel like you know, every like every now and then. I just enter into that argument again and again with you <laughs> in my mind, like, but you know, so because I'm that is that is um, just by nature the way, by my own instinct as a mm-hmm. poet and yeah. as a reader, that's sure. how I enter. That's how I enter. Yeah. So it's just interesting. Like, I would love you to talk a little bit about that. Like, what, what is it? What is it about um, the idea? Or maybe that's like was a fleeting thought that you have and you can't even remember what the hell I'm talking about. I feel like I remember this conversation slightly. But slightly. I. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it, it, for me, not that I just, how do I say, I distrust voice. Mm, I, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I don't think you said, now that you're saying that, I yeah. think you said that it wasn't very useful a way of talking about. Um, at approaching a poem as a reader, not as a writer. writer. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I think uh, it's interesting because when, when I'm thinking about voice, again, like Stevie Wonder is like a huge metaphor for me, um, which is I love that he sounds different album to album. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's like, oh, I want to try the synth thing in the 80s. I want to try this reggae thing. Right. Like it's still Stevie Wonder. Right. But he's willing to sort of expand and stretch and to be a different sort of uh, artist simultaneously, or the stuff he did with Sarita, right? Um, Sarita, uh, his former wife, his, his first wife, I believe, um, and sort of her production on his sound, right? He produced a very different sound. Um, and so I'm really interested in producing many different types of sounds, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to having a voice. Because I think once you have a voice, if you know how to do a thing, then it should be quickly jettisoned uh, for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe that. I'm trying to f- figure. That it seems, and that makes sense to me. The idea that, like, if you are um, keyed into looking at poetry by way of a poet's voice as a like across their work, yeah, that it can be limiting in in the way you're looking at that poet. Yeah, you know, I get that. I think that maybe also the term the word the word voice is one of those terms that like mean different things to different, different people, people. Yeah, you know yeah yeah like, to me it's like the utterance like the voice like this is how you do everything it's uh, like this is you know i like that i i think for me i'm thinking about like remember when i mean i feel like i don't know if mfa instructors and uh creative writing instructors are saying this anymore but remember when like we were younger and everybody you have to find your voice mm-hmm. this is voice you're looking for mm-hmm. right it was this mysterious thing that you would walk into one day right and god had granted yeah. it to you and, and you it was come- and yeah i'm just i don't know if i believe in that mm-hmm. and this is also because it's funny because we also had a conversation about the word talent and you said I I don't believe in talent. No, I I, I mean I believe in it in the sense of like there, is, there there are people that are talented at this thing called writing or at basketball right. or at singing or at lots of various different things. The reason I I don't want to put a over sort of emphasis on talent is because I think it's work, right? Like talent, I know plenty of people that have talent oh, that yeah. are not working. Yeah. Right. It's the person that works that gets it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like Michael Jordan's a great example. And, you know, and we hear this from basketball players all the time. People sleeping in the gym. Right. Like you sleep in the gym enough. If you do nothing, you will surpass some talented people if yeah. that don't have that drive. Right. And I think the same thing with like writing a poem. I think it's like anything else. I think that talent. There's a lot to say, but you can also learn to see. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think you can learn to sort of. I th- you can learn you can learn what language does you can learn all these all these sort of things um that allow you to sort of circumvent it and i i just really think it's it's a it's a dogged effort it's like mm-hmm. he or she who can stay or they who can stay in 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 the mode of being rejected mm-hmm. in doubt whoever can stay in doubt the longest will probably prevail it's true um i think it was larry bird i'm going to tell something in I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know. (laughs) I know. But uh, this is obviously something that I 
heard probably from my husband, who is a very big basketball person. But he, I think Larry Bird said that when he was young and he was trying to teach himself how to do like free throws Mm -hmm. or three pointers, I don't know what, he would stay out in his yard, in his, the driveway, and that he would imagine all of the, all of the athletes across the world who were doing what he was doing and he would see their lights go out as they quit for the night. Hmm. And he just wanted to be the last light on. You know, he wanted to be out there the longest. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be the one person who, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely on the, on, the, on the competitive side. But there's also, like, when we can take it out of the sort of competitive medium because I don't really know, always know if that's great for a writer to be oh, yeah, right. in that sort mm-hmm. of. But I think we can put it in the sense of, I think there's a thing, you know, I really got this really great advice um, from a poet. I want to, uh, Melissa, what's Melissa's last name? It was it was the best piece of advice on how to think about revision. From Melissa. Oh, Melissa. From Melissa the poet. No, she's, uh, <laughs> she, she's with Copper Canyon. Her last book just came up from Copper Canyon. I can't believe I'm, I want to credit her, her. What is her book? What is her book? I can't remember the title. I'm blanking right now. Yeah, no. But I, 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 one of the things she life. said to me, and I, I, I think this is true about revision, you know when you've said it and you know when you have it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest about that with yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think a lot of that sort of waiting until the light, that last light goes out is, did I really, could I do, I know I have five more in me. Right. I know I have five more free throws. It's internal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's an internal, right? And he, you know, he externalized it in that way, um, Larry Bird did. But I think one of the things I always think of is like really allowing the poem to fully sort of mature, allowing myself to mature in the poem. Because mm-hmm. often we're writing at the edges of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to mature into the poem, into what the poem is thinking about and all the ways in which we can make the poem itself and feel inevitable so i think that for me i'm always i'm interested more than talent and more than voice in someone who can sit in that doubt mm-hmm. right i learned so much from my students that actually doubt themselves the most mm-hmm. those are students that i find i learn so much more about and i learn like oh i need to go deeper i need to sort of be in doubt much in the way that they are um and and so for me it's about sort of just sitting just sort of being patient and so much happens in that in that time when you're sitting and you're you're just being with your work you know like that sort of time when you just know it's hard to articulate but like there's a period where I feel like okay I've handed over the reins and this poem is it's this poem is smarter than I am and so I am like, uh, what I need to do here is like disappear in a way and like just allow the poem to be, yes. you know, in that space. And that's like a really, that's a really amazing thing about writing, I think, is that you can do that and you can, you know, you can transcend almost like your, your entire self in, in the practice of it. It's a beautiful thing when the poem sort of takes over. Yeah. It's a really nice and I think when anything takes over, I think dancers experience this where you've you've been practicing, right? And it's been so deliberate. And you just have that one moment where it's not deliberate. I think as a runner, I, I try to feel this as a runner or try to sort of embody this, right? Where you can go, you know, you can be doing a thing and all of a sudden you maybe your mind goes somewhere else. But for five to ten minutes, your your body is taken over. And that, to me, is sort of what we want the poem to do. We want the poem to take over, even as it's manifesting our intelligence. And even as I think the poem is sort of a different self that we have, right? Like, I'm always interested in all the different selves that I can sort of tap into as a poet. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really nice when that other self sort of arises and does something in language, uh, makes a type of beauty or a type of sound that you didn't know was possible, you know? And so you're just like, oh, man, this is like, you know, it's a it's a beautiful thing. It's a it's a it's a thing you live for. It happens every now and then, yeah. right? But you're constantly sort of in the studio or on the desk or pounding the pavement or whatever sort of to sort keep of, yourself limber and ready for to, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like it's also a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think it's funny that you mentioned jazz and like practicing. I was just talking to Neil because we have a show tonight on jazz and the art of place, mm-hmm. and I was like this idea of the practice place and the Mm. place where you can become 
you know, is like that's like a, a a sacred space where you're not in public, you're not showing yourself. You're kind of like mm, you know shed. maturing. Yeah, you're like you're 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 becoming. Yeah. And like now, I feel as if there's so much value, or like we're so dictated by the golden object, mm-hmm. you know, by the finished product, mm-hmm. and we're driven by the next great thing. And there's such little space to just become and to say to step back and just be like, I'm just gonna be. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's almost this like. Re- revolt against the way that time continues mm. to move us ahead, mm-hmm. you know? I, I totally, I think one of, something I'm really interested in playing with, and I've been, is making my reader take time, right? So I've been writing longer as a way of sort of pushing a contemporary reader to sort of stay with a thing, to be in a thing, right? One of the beautiful things about a poem is lyric time isn't happening in present time and isn't, and so it divorces itself, it arrests time, right? So one of the things that makes poetry difficult is that it has a totally different set of, sense of time, right? Mm-hmm. This is actually, I think, one of the things that we sleep on, right? The line break, right, is about, is a time element, right? And we control time, right? And very few readers are giving themselves over, right? Very few people are giving themselves over to be controlled, right? To have their time manipulated in this fashion, right? So, yeah, I think that the woodshed in jazz, I think it's the, you know, um, the sort of the desk, the writer's desk. It creates this moment where there are many things that have happened. It's almost like if we came to this desk here every day for a month and we wrote, right? All of a sudden, there's we've accumulated so much time and space, and we've, the poems that have been made in here, or the writing we've done, has gone so many places that eventually this place then sort of becomes a non-place, right? And there's all these things that we'll remember that have happened in here, and and that didn't, that really haven't happened, right? In that sort of way, and so I think that sort of practice does that, right? It turns a place into a non-place. It allows that it's what you know. This is ritual. Right. At the end of the day, we're sort of describing ritual. What ritual does is it allows us to take to move in time, but move out of time simultaneously, like to be in this world, but not of this world. Right. Um, It made me think when you're talking about um, jazz and place of Wadada Leo Smith. He did um, he did this suite for Emmett Till. And there's a video of him playing. He's a trumpeter, jazz trumpeter. He's playing it in a boat as it's going down the Tallahatchie where Emmett Till is, was killed near oh where God, and out. it's a beautiful video I think he was a <coughs> finalist for the Pulitzer two years ago or three years ago uh, and it's just this amazing image because it's a tr- it's trump- it's a trumpet sound moving down a, a river mm. right and so it really it it sort of defamiliarizes the Tallahatchie simultaneously make it, turning this sort of moment into an elegy and it turns the space until it's just elegiac space, the Trump, it's, it's an amazing, amazing sort of thing. And so, but I think that that's what sound does, mm-hmm. right? Sound transforms spaces. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there's a way in which sort of, uh, I'm really, I, I love, I, I love that idea, right? Like I'm always interested in doing that, right? Sort of changing the space, right? Via the voice, right? The physical voice. That's why I agree. Like, you know, the physical voice or the poem, right? I love when I'm looking down, for instance, at a poem and I'm reading it and I look up and I'm like, I'm now different and what I've been around is now different because this poem is like changed the space mm-hmm. that I occupy, right? To me, that's what poetry and that's what good art does, right? It changes the space. You look up and you're like, I can't go about the day myself the way I was going about it before this. Yeah. yeah. There's also this this other thing that can happen with poems too when you I mean just as a, as a reader oh I'm sorry as a reader um, you have I have so many more experiences with poems on the page than in a physical voice and when you I mean this, this I was just like thinking that like this never fails to sh- like surprise and delight and amaze me when a, 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 it's like a little concentrated view of this because you know we do these we do these interviews and you know I read the poem a number of times and think about it and think about things that I want to talk about and ask about and 
I just get really familiar with it. It's like, mm. th that's my experience with it up until the moment when, and mm. it's like, you know, f on my end, it's like, okay, I'm preparing for an interview <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, like, just like, don't, you know, be a total dumbass. And then there's this moment where like, will you read the poem? And everything always changes just, after yeah. that mm -hmm. moment. So true. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, just, this isn't, this is like, stop mm. and be here in this moment. And then you can hear the way that the poem is different in your voice, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that it, that, that is also another sort of way that the space has changed. Mm -hmm. Like my, the space that I've been occupying with this poem yeah. get, is changed when it comes out of your mouth or when it, you know, that's, you know, this, the poet, and it, I'm not talking about performance. I'm no. just talking yeah. about the voice, yeah. you know? Yeah. Sound changes things. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, if we think about like sound waves and, all the studies that have been done on sound waves, I mean, that's essentially what chemotherapy is, right? And like, if we think about ra or radiation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, those are waves, mm -hmm. right? Breaking up cancerous molecules, right? That, there's something to sound, right? Sound in, as an initiative sort of utterance that begins. So, so many texts, right? So many historic or religious texts, right? And God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? Like, the saying makes a thing mm -hmm. so. Um, and I think that, I remember... Th I, I always loved poetry when I was younger. Um, I didn't grow up around poetry. And I remember the first poet I got to hear read was Yusuf Komenyaka. Mm. And, and I remember I would read his poems I th and I would say, I love them, but I didn't understand them. And I remember as soon as I heard him read, all of his poems made so much sense because I could, ha his voice carried something. His voice did something for me. And I, I, and it would begin, it taught me a lot about how to hear. Right. And so um, I think the voice voices change things. Right. Um, and so Komiyaka was a great example for me. Like I was like, oh, my God, I've always loved his poems. I've been terribly confused about them. And now I'm not. Mm -hmm. It became yeah. It, yeah, completely revelatory. I uh, this was before like Spotify probably even before Napster, you know, <laughs> when you had to buy things yeah. like on a CD if you wanted yeah. to hear them. And you couldn't really just like go on the internet and have like five recordings of whatever, like Robert Frost reading something come up. And I mean, just a, a friend bought me this. It was a, it was a book of poems and then the, and recordings. I mean, there was like a, there was like the oldest recording of a poem, which I can't remember what it is. Maybe, I don't know. Was what it, it was. Tennyson on the That's black it. cylinder? Yeah. yeah. That's it. Right. Tennyson. Um, I'm like, you know, listening along and, you know, it is interesting to hear Robert Frost's weird little voice. Like, he, like, oh, I get it. Like, he was just a weird little man, you know, like now that makes like so much more sense. Like stopping by snow, you know, snowy wood. And then like listening to and just a poem that's so familiar to so many people. Mm -hmm. Like when you go to uh, I've gone to elementary classes, you know, to, mm -hmm. and then the teacher will be like, We've we've memorized a poem and everybody like stands up and says it and very often it's we real cool. Oh yeah. And then hearing Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Brooks, Brooks read that we poem. Real cool. Wait, skip. Oh my. Wait. Yeah, I love. Gwendolyn we should Brooks. go on tours like poetry <laughs> impersonators. Poetry, <laughs> <laughs> you should. I could be. You could be Gwendolyn. I'll Have you ever read. heard Langston Hughes? No, I don't think so. His voice is. Oh yeah, of course. It's really yes, flat. Yeah. He's like, I've known rivers, great dusky <laughs> rivers. Right, he's from the Midwest, right? So he's not gonna have. He's not gonna have like the, like you imagine this poem to be like Paul Robeson. I've known rivers. Yeah. Right? No, it's like I've known rivers, great dusky. <laughs> In fact, there was a, a moment where Ruby D, uh, and uh, was her. Um, Where's her husband? Um, Ossie Davis, they, they went on a Ruby D and Ossie Davis sort of had this little sort of joke where they were going to start a petition where they would ban Langston Hughes from reading his poems. Oh, because he's so good, though. He's so sweet. He's like, it's, a, it's a human voice. It's a very, well, like, if you heard Ossie Davis read his poems, you'd be like, oh, okay. Like, no, but it was just like his voice was so tinny uh, in some ways. And it, it's great. I love it. But I, I had a similar sort of thing. I had the Negro Speaks of Rivers. It was a anthology that the UNICEF United Negro College Fund put out. Mm. Um, and it was these, it was a double disc of like people like Arna Bontemps, um, Nikki Giovanni, Jane Cortez. Uh, and it, it had, it had even had W. Du Bois on it. Mm. Right. And it had all these people reading or t reading, reading poems. And it stopped with like uh, Tracy Morris. So it went all the way up to like spoken word. Uh, and it was just this amazing thing to hear. 
Um, and I would just listen to it over and over and over and getting these people like Arna Bone Thompson's like, I think he is like most people don't even know he is, but his, his voice is very much in my head when I'm, when I'm hearing poems. Mm. Um, he has a, a poem called, uh, something at Bethesda. It's an amazing poem. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing poem. Nocturne at Bethesda. Um, and he just has this amazing voice and amazing reader or even Claude McKay. If you, you the famous if we must die mm-hmm. right which uh churchill made famous during world war ii right the mm-hmm. famous poem but like if you hear claude mckay read it he mm-hmm. reads it with such a such a force such a like it feels like a revolutionary poem mm-hmm. when he reads it you know in this way so i totally totally i love those old recordings and penn's website is great for this mm-hmm. uh Penn has all the everybody that's ever read at the Kelly house. So they have, uh, they have, uh, another person who can really, really read well. If you want to hear it, like a great voice is, um, Etheridge Knight. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, th- it's so funny to hear you talk about this though. Cause it, it makes me think that poems are like spells, you know, like you, like you, you kind of say them out loud. And even when you don't know what they mean or you don't, you let you, you say them like you're in church, you mm-hmm. know? And then all of a sudden it kind of comes out and you're like, Oh, I get it, you know? Well, I, I think so. And that often, that's that's one of the things that often happens when, like, like in a situation like this where I have become very familiar with a poem on the page and I have not read it aloud and I have not allowed that experience of the poem perhaps enough. Like, I, you know, I was, I just recorded another interview over the phone with the poet Sam Sachs and he has this poem and it ends with, like, something about, like, a, a spell... A spell. Oh, it was a spell. The word spell. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I I read the poem very dutifully. I <laughs> noted everything, and I had very smart things to say. But um, it didn't occur to me that there was like two ways of reading that. The, mm. Like a spell being like also like a time. Yeah. Yeah. Be somewhere for a spell. Yeah. You know. Sit for a and spell. so I was like, oh my god, that's just. And it was like. You know, I didn't point it out to, to Sam, and he wasn't surprised. He was like, "Yeah, it's, it's like clearly there," you know. <laughs> but when you hear it in, you know, you hear it in in a voice, and also, I mean, when you're writing a poem, mm. this also happens to me a lot. Like, I'm like, this poem is just, it's this is it. This is the final version of the poem, and then you read it aloud or yeah. something, and then you're like, "Oh yeah," and I use that phrase three times in a row. You know, or like that's just it, you just hear you can yep. hear things that you cannot see on the page. Yeah, yeah. I think the hearing, I mean, poem. You know, we you know, for all of it being such a literate art, and this sort of current iteration is still very much an oral art, mm-hmm. uh, and orality is huge, mm-hmm. right? And if we think about spells, both to sit a spell, right, and what it is to cast a spell, right, um, right. It, I love that it like to think about them in tan in sort of in tandem, which is to think that maybe a spell is only for the moment in which the sound that you hear it, that the spell is enacted in that moment, what you hear that it doesn't have to actually transcend that moment, right? That, that sitting for a spell and hearing a spell could actually be this momentary thing, right? And that the poem itself is enacting the thing that it wants you to sort of be or where it wants to be. It is enacting the future that it imagined. Right. Um, and so like, yeah, I think that the poem as this sort of sound box is I sometimes I'm overly guided by it and I have to be careful. Uh, but I am definitely, I'm looking for, to me, that's the inevitability of sound. Why do you think that you, why are you, why do you feel like you have to be cautious of it? Or like, do you feel like that, that sometimes you, it goes too far toward the sound? And it, no, no, I just think mean? it's, it's, um, there's th- sometimes there are ways in which sonority right if you're if you're interested too much in something being sonorous or harmonious then you won't break it Mm -hmm. right and sometimes you have to break a thing Mm -hmm. right the thing can be moving beautifully along and then what you need to do is actually break Mm -hmm. sound change it up figure contort it distort it um, become unbeautiful for a moment right and i think that if you're sort of overly connected overly entranced by a certain type of way of understanding sound then one won't allow mm-hmm. sort of these other versions of sound to come in and be part of the poem too like for me that's where Ashbury's interested mm-hmm. interesting for me mm-hmm. um uh where i'm interested where like we can break 
right? And we can sort of start the poem anew. This is why I love Ame Césaire. He does this quite often. He'll have a poem that's like a prose poem, then all of a sudden he'll start lineating it mm. because hmm. he needed to change the rhythm. And then he'll go back to a prose poem. Mm. Or he'll maroon a line. He'll have what looks like a strophe, right? Single single uh, stanza with uh, single stanza poem. And then he'll just take this line and move it way out hmm. to the right, right? And I think that that sort of inaction, right? He's he's I think he's kind of roughing up the poem and simultaneously allowing the poem to be what it needs to be in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what these sort of moments of resisting mm. uh, the form do or resisting a type of sonority or a type of mm-hmm. harmoniousness. Has that changed for you over the years of writing? Like I'm thinking about early earlier in my like when I was putting together my first book of poems for example like I wanted them all to like be a plus mm-hmm. uh, I was you know like the, if I just kept beating them into submission I would get them to be a plus students right <laughs> and um like I felt like I I knew very clearly <laughs> that's like why I wasn't I'm not a very good teacher <laughs> they don't that's even. not what I hear <laughs> Um, that th- th- I just like, I know when something's done. I know when it. I know when I know what a good poem is for me, and mm. I'm confident in it. And like these are the poems that I feel really confident reading, mm. and and I feel like more and more as I go farther down the path of writing, um, I just feel like I have no. I don't. I mm. as a person, as a person, I don't know what what. You know, I, like, I'm with you. So often I'll just like, I'll read a poem like, oh, I, I've never read this poem out loud. and I'm going to read it now. And then that poem is like, it, you know, somebody mm-hmm. just really connects with it. And mm-hmm. I just think like, wow, that's that's incredible. I didn't I think that poem sucks. Or, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. I don't have that experience. With it. And now I don't really know when a poem is good or bad or whatever. And I, I think it's like kind of it's freeing in a way yeah like, i'm not going to i'm not trying to do that anymore in my work and that's really i like also reading poems like that where mm-hmm. you just feel like the you don't know where the poet's going you don't know where the poem is going but that this person is practiced enough mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. like i'm going to you know this person knows every road in this town mm-hmm. and they're going to take me on a wild ride and I'm going to be there for it because they've practiced driving all, mm-hmm. they know mm-hmm. all the maps, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I where, think directive is like that for Frost. Do you know that poem? Mm-hmm. Right. Back out of all this now too yeah. much force back in the time made simple, but right. If you look at that poem, it's digressions. You don't know where you're going in the yes. poem. Right. And, but you trust it because one, it's beautiful. Like it's sort of the blank verse line is just, it's giving it to you. And then it's also syntactically changing in these ways that are like awfully pleasurable, mm-hmm. but he, he, it's, it's a very, it's, it's his version of modernism, yes. right? Right. It's all about things broken, something detached from the past. Right. Uh, but it's so beautifully done, but it's very unfrost like, mm-hmm. yes. Right. Um, so I'm really interested in sort of di- digressive, mm-hmm. uh, digressive poetics, um, because often I think the goal is to find something, you know, Frost, and this is where, I'm, you know, I love Frost where he says no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader, no surprise for the writer, no surprise mm-hmm. for the reader. Right. So if we know at the beginning of the poem, what, the, what where are we going? then that poem is going to not be exciting. Yeah. Right. And so I'm really interested in sort of allowing the. I really want to find some place new in each poem, yeah. right? Like, and sometimes I have to even be careful of that, right? Because then we we might even that becomes formulaic, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I think the thing, you know, like I do remember that trying to beat every poem into a plus poem, or trying to make. This is what I mean. I think there are ways in which sometimes we sort of start to know ourselves and know what we like, mm-hmm. and we have a thing like, you know, like it's like your favorite drink. You know what I mean? Like you're like, oh, I love an old fat for me. I love an old fashioned, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you gotta try. You gotta try a gin drink. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Sometimes we gotta try, and it's not gonna taste like the old fashioned, mm-hmm. right? But the poem might require us to make to like make a gin drink, to make several mm-hmm. gin drinks, mm-hmm. right? And we have to learn how to sort of acquire that taste. Too. It's it's like such a perfect metaphor. I'm yeah. thinking of it in terms of cooking, like you know trying something new yeah. you know you have all these like you bought all these ingredients and you don't you know you don't want to screw it up and if you cook long enough 
you know that like one of every 10 meals you cook that you try to that you attempt is going to suck and not just a little bit and then your family has to eat that you know and it's like ugh, I worked and it's like they they take the longest and they're the most involved and they make the kitchen the most messy and also it tastes like crap so great you know Um, but it's funny though because it's the same thing it's like you know when you talk about um, poems not having to be A plus poems, it's also like, like you never meant you're never meant to be an A plus poem. Mm-hmm. You were never meant to be human. Yeah. You, know? you were never meant to be like, human. Like as if as if like the construct Just of let making go of a, that. the perfect poem is a construct. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's not what it's for. Mm-hmm. It's, that's that's why I feel like the longer I have done it, the more and more um, I mean, I'm really drawn to, I've always been drawn to religions, mm. like the idea of religion, the idea of being a part of a religion, and I have never fit in. Mm-mm. I've never fit that. Mm. And it's been very difficult, like throughout mm. my life. Mm. It has been something that has been very difficult for me, kind of personally and emotionally, that I've longed for that and have never found the place. Mm-hmm. And But in writing, I feel like that is where I can go for the the it's not it's not that it's mm-hmm. not spiritual transcendence it's mm-hmm. not um communion with god mm-hmm. but it is like it mm-hmm. is as close to mm-hmm. as i think i will ever get mm-hmm. and in, in some ways i just think that's maybe the only reason i write it's like mm-hmm. i've just jerry rigged this mm-hmm. kind of situation where i mm-hmm. can kind mm-hmm. of get a mm-hmm. little bit of mm-hmm. like oh yeah i i get that Mm. The sort of you know you sit with it and you're it's there and you, it's not it's not there is nothing you know yeah. it comes from nothing it goes to nothing, it is uh, you know, yeah, I'm just I'm thinking too about like people I I've, thinking about like people who are writers all their life and never publish anything mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like so often like you know younger poets it's like they're they're obsessed with publication they're obsessed mm-hmm. with much more obsessed with publication than the practice of poetry. Mm-hmm. And then you think about, like, I know a number of, like, older most women or, you know, older, a couple of older men who have been writing diligently their whole life, like a practice, mm-hmm. and have no interest in, in publishing. Uh, I love... I think that... It's funny. I think about Bridget Bikini Kelly. Mm. Right? She... What, she put out three books? Mm-hmm. Those are amazing oh books. Gosh. Her poems three? will last. I think three. It was in two? Bellies, was it The Orchard? Song. Song. I thought there was one more. Maybe it's only two. I, I thought know. there was one more. we have to look that up. But I just think, you know, that type of practice patience, mm-hmm. uh, to, that practice with the art. Um, I don't know what it was like in her personal life, like if she was tortured by it or yeah. not, but... She didn't seem to be when I when I when I had conversations with her, and so I I totally agree with you. I think um, so. I, I it's funny that you bring this up. It's also because like we're in Austin, and I when I was a grad student here at, during the MFA, uh, I lived on the same property. There was a man named uh, Burn Ballard. He was a World War II veteran who lived at uh, on uh, Vienna and like Thirty Second Street, so Thirty Second and Red River, and he was a World War II veteran that had written a novel about. World War II that he had tried to publish in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it never got published, but he told me about it. And he was still writing poems into his 90s and still working on this novel. And I just think, you know, that's, I hope I have that sort of peace. And and that's the peace I wish for all of us as writers, right? Um, To to be able to sit with a thing, Mm -hmm. to really sit and let just, right? Because it's about the practice. Like, like I do, I, I love what you're saying, like about sort of the way in which you can sort of jerry rig this to to mm-hmm. to sort of create this sort of connection or create this relationship that you would like to have or some a way of community, right? Um, for me, it's a similar sort of practice. My mine is, it's the only place that I can defy the world. And what I mean by that is. So much of the world would like to make me believe I'm not beautiful or that I don't, I shouldn't be here as a brother, as a mm-hmm. black man. Um, and it's the place to be beautiful. It's the place to, to say, you know, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Watch this. Mm-hmm. Watch me make something that you never thought I could make, that I was never intended to make in your world. Mm-hmm. I can make this other thing, 
right? And you can do nothing about it. That to me is like what beauty really is, right? Like what you, what can you make, right? Um, and so like I love that. Like I love what you were saying because I think that that's what the practice. Like I remember one time, Jury Graham said at a reading, "If all you ever, if all you ever intend to make is a poem, then you'll make that. You'll just make a good poem." She was like, aspire for your poems to be something else, to be more than just a good poem, right? And I think that that's sort of what you're articulating is that the poem has a sort of an an utterance, a life outside that moves in this way that's sort of in a larger, uh, more not more significant, but just in a, in a different way. And is it is devoid of that, like, even the the ability to be characterized as good, bad, you know, publishable, non-publishable, crap of a certain school, you know, high art, low art, yeah. what is like, that's just, that's all know. that, that is not, Mm-mm. it's not, it defies all that as Mm-mm. well. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's space, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love, it's just I love, space. I, yeah. I love that. So there's two, Carrie usually asks this question, like, sure. how did you come to poetry? Yeah. Did you want to ask that? Well, I mean, I, I'm interested, especially because, I mean, am I, am I remembering, misremembering, weren't you like on track to be like an Olympic runner? Uh, I ran in college. I did. Uh, I actually tested into a flight position for the Air Force. I was actually uh, pre-med in engineering when I was for like my first two years of college. Yeah, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut, I thought, and study like, yeah, and the way you become an astronaut is you become a pilot pilot, uh, and a flight surgeon, so a doctor as well, because, you know, when you're in space, anything can happen yeah you need to be able to like heal somebody uh so you got an appendix or two yeah so i was uh yeah when i was when i was first in college that was sort of but i came to poetry it's interesting because i came to poetry probably really young really early on um i was um i grew up in this pentecostal church it's funny i was just home and my mother is a sunday school teacher and so we always were surrounded by like the King James version of the Bible. She was reading it. And so I learned to read really early on and I would just like sort of try to mimic that. Um, and then when I was a kid, I would make little birthday cards for my friends because we couldn't afford birthday gifts. So I'd make little birthday cards and I would make poems. I would make acrostic poems okay. or I would make poems out of, and, and integrate comics into them. Um, so I was always like sort of playing with text and, and, and visual uh, matter when I was a kid. But it was in fifth grade that it was like my official sort of, I'll never forget there was a contest to write a poem about spring for the whole fifth grade and was going to be judged. And I will never forget, uh, I was sitting in my reading class and it was a rainy day. And I look outside and it's, you know, we're trying to write about spring and I make my first sort of simile, right? That I think is like an original simile, which is it was like the the rain falls on the window like baby's feet or something like that. It was, And I was just so enamored with the fact that I made a simile mm-hmm. and I was like 10 or 11 years old. And I remember not being able to get past that point because <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, what's next? That was I thought it was so beautiful. I was like, Wait, that's what's my next? masterpiece. Exactly. I wrote my masterpiece. <laughs> Done. Done. Exactly. So that's how I started um, sort of thinking about myself. But I thought of myself as a writer for because uh, um, I wrote journalistically in high school. Um, and then I kind of got away from it until... Uh, I was at I was at Princeton undergrad and I was hating it. Uh, I wound up dropping out of school and I thought, oh, I just want to read and write books. I was about 20. And that's when sort of the more current iteration of that. And I met a I met an older guy who was getting his master's degree in English. And he told me he was like, yo, you could just be a writer. And I was like, for real? Like, you know, like I was like, she was like, yeah, he was like, I have a friend who's a writer. He was like, he was like, that's what he does. Right? And I was like, for real, and his friend happened to be Jericho Brown. Uh, oh, wow. And so I actually talked to Jericho when I was an undergrad, and he had just graduated from undergrad. And I think he was in his MFA in New Orleans at the time. And so, yeah, like, it was Mike Campbell. That, so, like, when I was 20, my friend Mike Campbell just told me, like, you could be a poet. And I was like, all right, cool. I love that it was, like, more accessible to you that you were going to be an astronaut. Like, like, what? Like, <laughs> right, that like, was much more accessible. Seriously, no, like, I was no. like... I, like, never conceived of the idea that you could be a writer. No, This I, is similar to, this like, Amy, brilliant. Um, Amy's story. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, so she, brilliant. like, came upon a poem, and, like, she didn't know what it was, and it, like, blew her mind, and she changed her major, like, the next week. Yeah. She was studying chemistry. Yeah, I was, like, mechanical and aerospace engineering, and... 
and Air Force ROTC. And... I do love you as a poet, but it would be so freaking cool if you were also an astronaut. <laughs> I know, right? So cool. It would That's be cool. True. It would be cool to be an astronaut. Maybe they'll send a poet yeah. to space and I'll be that poet. First like poet in space. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if, because Roger's been in Cuba, if he, did you remember that we were going to ask you to read a poem at the end? To no. share a poem from another poet? I did not. Yeah. I, I, I actually disco- don't. Oh. No, I'm always carrying. He always carries an emergency poem emergency with him. Poem. <laughs> it's probably... going to be behind glass. Break, <laughs> break the glass. <laughs> oh, who is it? Ame Cesaire. Oh, yes. Beautiful. And it's Great. from uh, Solar Throat Slashed. It's a poem called Preliminary Question, and it was translated by A. James Arnold and Clayton Eshelman from French. Preliminary Question. As for me, should they grab my leg, I vomit up a forest of lianas. Should they hang me by my fingernails, I piss a camel bearing a pope and vanish in a row of fig trees that quite neatly encircle the intruder and strangle him in a beautiful tropical balancing act. The weakness of many men is that they do not know how to become either a stone or a tree. As for me, I sometimes fit sulfurous wicks between my boa fingers for the sole pleasure of bursting into a flame of new poinsettia leaves all evening long, reds and greens trembling in the wind like our dawn in my throat. Roger Reeves' most recent collection is King Me from Copper Canyon Press. His poem, Children Listen, made its debut just now on This Is Just To Say. This Is Just To Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening.